Please be seated and take your Bibles. Turn with me to the book of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. And we are looking at verse 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Let's read the Word of God together. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 19th century intellectual and philosopher Pierre Bourdieu says that news is a series of apparently absurd stories that all end up looking the same. Endless parades of poverty-stricken countries, sequences of events that, having appeared with no explanation, will disappear with no solution. On the whole, when I think about the news that I see and that crosses my eyes on a week-to-week basis, I think I would agree. What about you? I mean... Out of the approximately 10,000 news stories that you've read in the last 12 months, name one in your mind that because you consumed it, allowed you to make better decisions about serious matters in your life, your career, or your business. And at the same time, though, I would imagine that journalists and authors and avid news consumers would disagree with this general pessimism toward news in general. In fact, one author would go so far as to write a book entitled 100 Headlines That Changed the World. Headlines? That changed the world? Changed the world? A headline? I mean, even though most news is meaningless The question we have to ask ourselves, is it possible that there is a story out there so powerful that it could actually alter the collective realities of the billions of people living on this globe? Does such powerful news exist? Can news really change the world? Now before you jump right to the question answer of this question, I want you to think about the question itself because it's a big one. And it's going to frame our entire study in the book of Mark. I'm asking, is it possible for news to change the entire world? I ask this generally. Is there a headline that can transcend the tides of time? Not just a week. Is there a report that can touch the breadth of humanity? Not just the Western Americanized consumer with his Twitter account, but even someone in the jungles of Africa who has no access to such news. Think about it more specifically. Is there a story out there that can actually change your life, not just the collective humanity, but even the individuals that comprise it? That can change an outcome of life, the way that one would enter the grave would be different because of a story. 
Or here's the better question. Is there some type of news that could actually change your eternity? That which takes place after life. For your consideration, I would like to offer to you, in the book of Mark, such news. And this news begins with the twelve words that were recorded for us today in verse 1. And there are three reasons why I think that we need to consider this news as life-changing, as something that could actually transcend time and eternity itself. And this will provide a little bit of background for the book of Mark. First of all, I would say that the book of Mark is this because of its claim. This gospel, this book, actually claims to be a very special message. You see right here at the, the, the beginning, it says the beginning of the gospel. Now, to understand what Mark means by the gospel, we need to see how it was used in his world. See, immediately, those of us in here who have been uh, reared in some type of church environment think, oh, I know what the gospels are. The gospels are the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you think, okay, this is the gospel. But that idea actually didn't develop until around 200 AD. This is not what they thought of when they heard the word gospel. Another popular word for gospel would just be good news, general good news. It comes from two Greek words, you and angelos. So you meaning good, like euphoria, we talk about a good feeling. And then angelos is angel or messenger. Anytime you see an angel in the Bible, it's a messenger. Even in Revelation 2 and 3, there's some evidence that the angelos or the angel of the church there is actually the messenger in the church. So you put these two words together, you get good messenger or good message And for a couple hundred years leading up to Mark, no matter where you saw the word gospel, it typically referred to the good news that consisted or that mainly dealt in the realm of victory over a political opponent or personal news that causes joy. So it's not just good news like, hey, I had a good day today. They had a different word for that. It was basically good news of a military or an official nature. That was just the general usage of the word. But there was a special usage of the word gospel. Not just in the New Testament, but also in the entire Greco-Roman world where they could take this gospel and they could separate it and make it something very special. They would use it to communicate something very different than just the normal run-of-the-mill usage. In the Jewish world, the sense of the word Gospel referred to this, this special event, this special news event in which a king would come and change the entire world. That was the event we read about in Isaiah 52 today. They consider that to be gospel. It wasn't just good news. It was the good news. The Romans had a similar word. They, they used it in a similar sense. They spoke of the good news. And sometimes they would talk about the good news of a coming God king that would rule over the world and fix everything. And for those of you who know your Roman history very well, you'll understand that 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 was a common occurrence. Caesar Augustus was the first to do it. He claimed himself to be God. And then he had everyone preach the gospel about his own coming to the entire Roman Empire that a God is among you, is leading you. This is gospel. It's not just good news. This was the good news. A coming God King had come. And for the Jews, a coming Messiah would come and He would fix it all. It's not just gospel. It is the gospel. And interestingly here, that's the exact word that Paul uses. 
He doesn't just say the beginning of a gospel of Jesus Christ. He says the beginning of the gospel. It is explicit both in the English and in the Greek. And he is setting it apart. The way that he uses the article here is called the article par excellence. He is saying that this is the best known of anything in the category. It is the good news. That's his claim. But there's another reason why I would submit the book of Mark to you as the type of message that could change in eternity. And that is also because of its source. Its credibility. I mean, this book is coming to us from a credible source. It's actually the message of Peter, the apostle, through his assistant, Mark. When you read through this book over and over and over again, you'll notice a couple of things that indicate who it was. It doesn't say who the author is. But we do know from reading it that the person had to be familiar with the geography of Palestine, that they needed to understand Jewish institutions and customs, that they shared a background in Aramaic, the language, the lingua franca of Judea, and then also Latin, the language of the Roman Empire. And what's interesting about the book of Mark, when you read it and you're trying to figure out who the author is, you notice as you read that whoever it was possessed a strong connection with the Apostle Peter. Because accounts that we know of that Peter was involved in are especially vivid. He gives a lot of detail. And the other thing that's extremely interesting about his connection to Peter is that he is very open and honest about Peter's faults and failures. So I can't imagine that someone would be so openly critical, if you will, of Peter if they weren't close to him. So who fits the bill? Well, when you go through and read the rest of the Bible... And you see this name, John Mark, it fits the description perfectly. I mean, we see Mark throughout the book of Acts as one who is close to Peter. His name is John, whose surname was Mark. That's Acts 12, 12, and 25, and 15, 37, and 39. He's always with Peter. And then Peter's close relationship is detailed with Mark in 1 Peter 5, 13, where he calls Mark his beloved son. And then Mark, we know, lived in Judea and would have therefore understand the geography of Palestine. He would have understood Jewish customs. Acts 12.12 tells us that when Peter was um, broken out of jail from an angel, whose house did he go to? He went to John Mark's mother's house. This is where he lived. He lived in Jerusalem. And then he would have known Aramaic and Latin as he spent time in both Jerusalem, Rome, and everywhere in between. So basically what we could say is that All right, this is pretty credible. This is somebody who has a close relationship with the Apostle Peter. This is somebody who witnessed some of the miracles that our our Lord would perform. And it's an eyewitness account. That's what you're looking for in news. You want somebody who has an eyewitness account or somebody who has firsthand testimony. And we have both of those in the Gospel of Mark. And there's one more reason why this particular message, I think, should be considered as the gospel, the message that could change the entire world, and that is because of its context. It was written to an audience that was, quite honestly, it was, it was burnt out on gospel. They, those people of the first century Roman world, kept hearing over and over and over again, every time a new Caesar would arise, the gospel. A man is coming to change the world! And yet their world, strangely, always remained the same. They were ready for something different. They wanted to know if there really was a coming king that could fix everything. Because they hadn't seen it yet. 
They were burnt out from these self-proclaimed gods and chosen kings. And so the way that Mark opens this is interesting because what he is doing in just these few words is he is actually pitting up the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, with the gospel of the Caesars. Rome has had its chance to proclaim its good news, and now Mark is going to give good news from heaven itself. Good news that he believes would change the world, and it's going to be up to us to see if that is really the case. And notice how he does it. He says, the beginning of the gospel, and then look in your Bibles there, the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus. This news, this life-changing, eternally significant news centers on the person of Jesus. Now, you need to understand something because for those of us who have grown up in church, we assume that Jesus is a very special name. But to be very fair, Jesus at that point in time was an extremely popular name. There were several people even in the Bible that are named Jesus that aren't this Jesus. When you actually go back and read the history of Josephus, and as he's writing about the Roman Empire at the time, you see that the most famous and popular name in his entire volume is Jesus. It shows up four to six times. But it's not talking about Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So what needed to take place, if Mark was going to herald a gospel, and the gospel was going to be about Jesus, he had to somehow limit it to the right person. It would be kind of like somebody saying they wanted to talk about Justin. Well, Justin's a pretty common name. How do you delineate that? How do you describe which Justin you're talking about? Mark had a way of doing that, and he did it with these two words that follow Christos, the Christ, and then he adds, Son of God, phrase the Son of God. This is the thrust of the message today. He's saying, look, right at the very outset, I want you to know this gospel is not necessarily a plan. It is a person. It is the person of Jesus The Christ, the Son of God. Which Jesus is it? It is this one. It is the one who is the Messiah. It is the one who is the Son of God. And his entire epistle, I mean, excuse me, his entire gospel is going to bear that out. Who is the gospel is the question being asked here. Who is this gospel? What makes this particular Jesus such life-changing good news? Is Jesus really the good news? Is He the one? Out of all the people who have come, is He the one that can really change the world? Is is this the message that could transcend all time and eternity and bring about a new reality to mankind? And that's what our sermon will answer today. Let's look at two attributes of Jesus that would actually enable us to rejoice in this good news. If you want to understand why the good news is so good, you want to understand why Jesus is the gospel and why that's significant, we need to see these two attributes. The first is this. Jesus embodies the gospel because of His messianic identity. Jesus embodies the gospel because of His messianic identity. Notice the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, you need to understand a few things here. First of all, in the grammar, when you see Jesus Christ, I want to help us. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It just seems like it. Like Justin Harris, Jesus Christ. Uh, The way that it's constructed in the original language, Christ is actually a modifier of Jesus, and it's giving His title, not His name. So, what's Jesus' name? It's Jesus. (laughs) Uh, it's, it's the name actually, 
to, to give you an idea of how common it is, if we were to take the name Jesus and bring it into American language, it would be the name Joshua. Jehovah saves. So in uh, Spanish, you know guys named Jesus. It means Jehovah saves. It was a very common name. It was the idea of Jehovah saving. I mean, it communicated that. But we know that Jesus really was the source of this salvation because of this title. He would wear the title Christ. And what you have is basically Jesus and then an equal sign and the Son of God. That's the way that is presented in Greek. It's trying to say that Jesus is the exact same person as Son of God, the exact same person as the Messiah. Now, the question, though, is, what is a Messiah? What do we mean by the Messiah? There was a popular understanding of Messiah at that time. There was a popular understanding of Christ. The word Messiah is just basically the Hebrew transliteration of this word Christ or Christos. So Christos literally means anointed one. In Hebrew, it's Meshiach, where we get the term Messiah from. And it literally means the anointed one. And anytime you see an anointed one in the Old Testament, it was talking about someone who was set aside for a special office. Typically a prophet, a priest, and most often a king. So the Jews, when they hear this word, Messiah, Christ, they immediately think king. But the question is, what kind of king do they think of? What was the religious expectation of the Christ in this culture? So you need to understand something. They did not have the same conception of a king that me and you have. They misunderstood the remedy They misunderstood this king. They defined the Christ and Messiah as a political ruler who would make their life better, not who he really was, a sovereign servant who would first and foremost die for their sin. See, all throughout the book of Mark, he's going to give us snapshots of what this king really looks like. And it's almost like if you were to put up on a corkboard somewhere, king, Messiah, and then these pictures, Mark has these pictures set up for us so that we know exactly what this king should look like. And some of the snapshots are this, that the Christ in Mark doesn't just heal everyone, although he could and one day will, nor would he overthrow the reigning world power, although he could and one day will. Rather, the Christ in Mark constantly foretells his own death. Mark 8, 31 to 33. Mark 9, 12 and 31. And 10, 32 to 34, they couldn't imagine a king that would actually die, and yet Mark, over and over and over again, is going to tell them, this king, this Messiah, this chosen one that you're looking for, is going to die. In contrast with the authorities and the rulers that they thought of, Mark gives us another picture. And that's in Mark 10, 42 to 45, where the Messiah declares that he would be the servant of all by being a ransom for many. That's the Mark, I mean, that's the Messiah that Mark portrays, that he's going to be a ransom for many. This is totally working against their conception of what they thought this king would be. Here's another snapshot that just really blows their minds. The Christ of the book of Mark, upon revealing himself to the religious authorities in chapter 14, listen to this. He's not worshiped or applauded but is immediately, upon saying that he is the Christ, he is immediately condemned to death, spit upon, and beat up while blindfolded. What kind of king is this? What kind of Messiah is this? 
And ironically, the final snapshot that we see of the Christ of Mark, he's finally publicly recognized as the Son of God for the first time in the entire epistle by a human being. He is recognized as the Son of God when hanging on the cross. The Roman soldier looks up and says, Indeed, this man was the Son of God. Why did they misunderstand that the Christ would do this? Why would you misunderstand? If I were to tell you that a chosen one is going to come and he's going to right all wrongs, that I've got good news for you, there's a king who's coming, and then all of a sudden I present this kind of king, you would think, hmm, doesn't sound like good news to me. What does he have to die for? The reason why we don't understand how great it is that Christ was this kind of king is because we don't really understand our need. See, we misunderstand the remedy because we misunderstand the need. And God knew what our ultimate need was. Because this was the only remedy for their sin. This, this Christ who would die. Because this was the only remedy for their sin, your sin, and mine. This Christ had to vanquish the very root of our problem before conquering its more obvious fruit. Peace on earth. Prosperity for all men. And you need to get that this morning or you will not understand the book of Mark. You will not understand this Messiah. You need to understand that Mark is going to portray this kind of Messiah, this kind of ruler. Because this was the only remedy for their sin, for your sin, and mine. This Christ had to vanquish the very root of the problem before conquering its more obvious fruit, which was peace on earth and prosperity for all men. You want salvation? You want a king that can rule? And I know what you're thinking. I want peace. I want prosperity. I want everything to be great here and now. And I'll be honest, I want that too. But there's something at the root that needs to be remedied before we can ever get to the fruit of that type of living. And Mark knew this. And Jesus knew this. And that's why He came. For those of you who are believers here today, I would say this. The reality that Jesus was and is this kind of Messiah does not seem like the great good news to us because we often forget our greatest need. You know what? I wouldn't even say that for the, for the believers. I would say that for unbelievers that are here as well. The reason why people don't look at our gospel and think, this is great news, is because they've been conditioned to think through Satan himself that they have greater needs. They've been sold the lie that their real needs are self-transcendence and self-actualization and self-esteem and a sense of belonging and friendship and self-satisfaction and money and physical health and safety. That's what we've been told our needs are. Sin, oh, somebody made that up. That's not a problem. The real problem is our self-esteem. The real problem is that we're not sexually gratified. The real problem is some type of social ill that's on the surface. And the truth of the matter is, Mark portrays this kind of Christ because he knows that that was our greatest need. You will not understand that this is good news until you understand the real problem. I would say it this way. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we as the church, we as the heralds of the gospel need to take ownership of this very problem right here, right now, in this place today. Here's the reality. Miscommunicating the need, we've done it. 
We've miscommunicated the need, and therefore people miss out on the remedy. When you miscommunicate the need, we will miss out on the remedy. Can I give you an illustration of that? Could you imagine with me the next time that you actually travel on a plane? You situation yourself into your cramped little seat, and then everybody is jammed in there with you, and the only solace that you have from this entire event is the beverage service. They don't give out snacks anymore because it's too expensive. So you have a Coke. And that is the epitome of the enjoyable time that you're going to have on this flight until you make it to your destination. Except for this flight. Because after the beverage service makes its way through and everyone served, an announcement comes up over the PA system in which, not the stewardesses, but the flight attendants, We're going to offer something new, something great, something that will increase the comfort of your ride. It will exalt your experience. It will just make this time fly by. And it's not a drink. It's a parachute. So here they come, down the aisles with their little parachutes. And they said, here, take one. This will make you feel great. This will be a really comfortable ride. And so people... Ignorantly began to don the parachute. And they think, okay, I'm looking for a, a happy ride here. I hope this is going to be really good. And then they wear it for a little while and it's uncomfortable. And it's burdensome. And now they're more cramped than they were in the first place. And eventually they're going to do what? They're going to take off the parachute and throw it down in disgust and say, I can't believe that somebody was offering this for comfort. Let's rewind the scenario. Cramp seat, beverage service comes through. But this time, Instead of the PA announcing that you're going to be receiving a parachute for a more convenient ride, you're told that the plane is going down. We don't know when. We don't know if we can make it to another airport. We're giving out parachutes because there's imminent catastrophe ahead. Now, when someone takes the parachute at this point and they understand that there's imminent catastrophe and they put it on, do they care about how uncomfortable it is? Do they care about how cramped it makes them? No, they just rejoice that they have some means of salvation when the catastrophe comes. And the big issue for us, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that we have miscommunicated the need to this world and we have caused others to miss out on the remedy. We have told them that, here, you should take Jesus because He's going to make your life more comfortable and He's going to heal all your diseases and He's actually going to give you money and He's going to eliminate all of your sicknesses. And people put it on and they're like, what is this? Instead of telling them the real problem, friend, you are a sinner and God is holy and righteous. And He will punish you for your sin. He will exercise His wrath in all of eternity. Here, take Jesus! That's good news. When you have that kind of a Christ, when you have a Christ that will come and not just give peace on earth and polish the car on the outside, but take care of it from the inside, you understand that this is great. This is something that you can rejoice in. See, to understand that Jesus is this kind, that, that Jesus is this kind of Messiah, you can't ever forget that your biggest problem and my biggest problem is not politics or prosperity or physical health. It's sin. 
After all, let me ask you this question. For those of you who think, oh, well, it's awful easy for a preacher to get up there and say that my biggest problem is sin. I, I think the biggest problem is the economy. I think the biggest problem is uh, social disorder. I think the biggest problem is racial tension. Look, where do you think all those things came from? Come on, think about it. Where did that stuff come from? Genesis chapter 3. Remember it? Actually, hold on, Genesis 3. Genesis 1 and 2. Remember it? It was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. And then you get to Genesis chapter 3. And for the first time, man chooses to disobey God. And what happens? What happens? Sin is introduced into the world. And do you notice how the narrative reads from Genesis 3 onward? Do you remember it? Let me remind you that at the beginning of Genesis 4, and progressing through the remainder of the book, the author records the first marital conflict, the first feeling of pain in childbearing, the first expression of frustration in employment, the first murder, the first case of polygamy, the first natural catastrophe, the first sexual sin, the first record of homosexuality, the first case of adultery, the first act of prejudice, the first case of sex slavery, and the list goes on and on and on all the way through the end of the book. And where did it all come from? Genesis chapter 3. Sin is the problem. You don't like the way things are right now? It's because sin is at the root of it. What you see is only the fruit. I'm going to make a strong statement. I'm going to make it carefully. I want you to hear it. Because this is biblical truth. Every current problem in our physical, visible, and emotional world can be traced back to sin. Do you understand me? I didn't say some. I didn't say most. Every current problem in our physical, visible, and emotional world can be traced back to sin. Thus, the need for a Christ who can reverse the curse by striking down the very root of sin. That's the Messiah that you're to recognize this morning. This is the good news that we preach. We don't preach a political ruler yet. Although He one day will do that. We don't preach a world healer yet, although He one day will do that. We preach a sovereign, suffering King. We need to recognize this. Look, I, um, I want to know if you're, you're here today and it's been, it's been a rough week. When you come on Sundays, you should be reminded this is good news. The kids may have not acted the way you wanted them to. Your business may have not turned out the way that you wanted it to. You may have not got the grades that you wanted to in school. The guys may have not treated you the way you wanted them to at work. But I tell you, those things are just peripheral issues compared to the real need. We can rest assured every week and be reminded, the king has taken care of my greatest problem. He has endured the wrath for my sin. Everything is good. came across this old hymn from the Gadsby Hymnal, an old Baptist minister back in the 1860s. He wrote, the gospel is good news indeed to sinners deep in debt. The man who has no works to plead will thankful be for it. The man that feels his guilt abound and knows himself unclean will find the gospel's joyful sound is welcome news to him. It's good news. This kind of king is good news. For those of you who are here and you're you're not into this Jesus thing. You visit church just because it's 
a good thing to do, may I encourage you and just plead with you, communicate with you for a moment. Hear me. You don't need, we don't need a politician, a business partner. The greatest need in your life isn't a spouse or a friend. You need a sovereign Savior. You need someone who can remedy sin. And you say, oh, well, sin, I I don't sin. I don't do anything wrong. Look, you think about the stuff that you do, even in your own laws and rules that you've made up for yourself. You probably don't even live up to your own standards. How do you fix that? The King has fixed it. That's why Jesus has come. And so, from these few inspired words, we know one of the attributes that make Jesus the Gospel. His messianic identity. However, this attribute alone does not give the full picture of Jesus' embodiment of the gospel. There's, there's something else that you need to see. And this last pers- of the part of the verse, we also see that Jesus embodies the gospel because of his divine nature. So we see that Jesus embodies the gospel because of his messianic identity, but also because of his divine nature. Notice the last part of the verse the Son of God. Remember I talked about the Greek construction actually placing Jesus as an equal sign to the Christ? You have the same construction here. The way that it's set up is Jesus, equal sign, the Son of God. He's one and the same. It is not something that He took on. It is someone that He is. It is, it is a part of Him. And what you really need to see here is that this Title, the Son of God, was so significant in a Roman mindset and culture. We just think Son of God in Christian terms, but did you know that the term Son of God and the idea of a divine God-man had been floating around in pagan culture for centuries by this time? Remember the Greek legends of long ago of Hercules, the son of Zeus who would come down and he was part man and part God. Well, even in their own stories, they didn't really believe in Hercules, but he was a wreck. And then on the Roman side of things, you still had the same kind of ruling God, except his name was Jupiter instead of Zeus. And he also had a godlike son named Apollo, but they didn't care much for Apollo because Apollo never entered their world. He was just another deity among the many, somewhere up there in the great beyond, never impacting life here today. But things took an interesting turn in 4 B.C., In the Roman world, for the first time, you actually had a man stand up and proclaim in an official pronouncement that he was divine. Caesar Augustus. Augustus implying that he was worthy to be worshipped. And he would have this gospel spread throughout the world that he was this divine ruler and that he would make all things right. It would even, this divine succession of rulers from Caesar Augustus to Tiberius and then later on to Nero and then later on to Domitian, all of them would claim lordship. All of them would claim to be savior, even to the point that laws were passed in which the Roman citizens themselves had to proclaim that the Caesar was lord and savior. They were used to a son of God. So the question is, when Mark says that Jesus is the Son of God, how does he portray Him? Is He one of these 
abusive, power-hungry political rulers that makes everybody serve them so, they could, so he could see how far and wide he could expand his own political empire? Or is he something different? How does Mark portray the Son of God? What does it mean? Well, Mark, in two broad, sweeping sections of stories, gives us two portraits of the Son of God. The first is in chapter 1 through 9, and we see his divine power. When you read Mark 1 through 9, just look for the divine power of Jesus, and you'll see that this was a powerful Son of God. I mean, the Caesars never could do any of the things that Jesus did. I mean, this is someone with eyewitness testimony from multiple sources that have been preserved for us throughout history, all throughout, who heals sick, exercises demons, controls nature, teaches authoritatively, even to the point of being able to forgive sins on God's behalf. Nobody was doing this. The Caesars could not do that. They never had the ability to control nature. They never had the ability to actually heal someone who was sick. And yet here we have the record of a man who walks on this earth with divine power. This is a true son of God. But not only was, does Mark portray a son of God with divine power, but he portrays a son of God that works divine service. Not just divine power, but divine service. When you look at chapters 10 through 16 of Mark, You see this prominently. All the records of the miracles dissipate until you only have about three sections of miraculous activity in Marks 10 through 16. And yet all throughout, you're going to see over and over again that this was a servant. Jesus is presented as the obedient son who surrenders himself as a ransom for mankind in obedience to God's will. Remember, he says the son of man did not come to serve. I mean, not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Again, Son of Man being a messianic title taken all the way back from Daniel chapter 7, even conveying deity itself, a godlike one would come, and he would come, and he would serve and not be served. He would give his life for people, for many. Now, this challenged their Roman conception, right? They were used to the this. God-like ruler, like walking over everybody and trampling over them for their own agenda. And he says, look, if you want to know what God's like, I'm a God who serves. And this portrayal of the Son of God, this just, to be really candid for me, it just ticked everybody off. This portrayal of the Son of God, it just offended everybody. It didn't just offend the Jews because of their views of Yahweh. But it offended the Romans as well because Your God would die on a cross? As Romans, they weren't even allowed to say the word cross in reference to themselves because it was so heinous. And yet, this God of yours would die the most shameful death in the entire empire? But Paul said it was so. 1 Corinthians 1, 22-25, you remember this verse? For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see that? There's a point in time when you're doing your gospel work where you just have to come out and tell somebody, but I know this is going to sound absolutely insane to you. But I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that He died for you and that He rose again so that you could have life. 
Don't try to argue the logic of it. It does not make sense to the natural mind. I mean, this is offensive. That somebody would die on a cross for me? What is this? And Paul just acknowledges, to the unnatural mind, I mean, to the unsaved natural mind, this is foolishness. Yet this is our message. Now, here's the question for you, though. Do you see... Personally, do you see why Jesus' divine nature is such good news? I mean, like if you were to try to explain that, if somebody were to ask, you know, what's the big deal about Jesus being the Son of God? Why does He have to be divine? I would answer it this way. Nothing or no one short of God Himself could fix our problem. Remember we talked about the real problem? You need God to fix this thing. Christology, what you believe about Christ matters. Here's the question. Why did He have to become God? I would answer it this way. Just think of this picture with me. Any Savior less than God Himself would be like the blind leading the blind, the lame helping the lame, the ignorant teaching the ignorant. The devastation of sin in our world is like that of a fire in a forest or a flood in a valley or a famine in a country. The best and worst of us are trapped by the same flames, surrounded by the same waters, suffering from the same drought. We need help from the outside. You can't get something different by adding more of the same. Our plight demanded. Our plight demanded divine rescue from the outside. Someone with the strength and compassion to enter into our condition at great cost to Himself so as to secure our safety. We needed God to fix this. Hypothetically, let's say that there was a Messiah that would come. And He would even be willing to take on the challenge of sin. But He wasn't God. How would He do it? How does a sinner enter into our human world and fix our sin? Who could do that? We needed outside rescue. And so I would argue that no one less than God Himself can meet our need because we, all of us, are absolutely unable to do anything to remedy our situation before God. Remember Romans 8, 8? Those who are in the flesh, just talking about normal people who are born as human beings, cannot please God. Doesn't say they do not. It says they cannot please God. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we read this a few weeks ago, but be reminded of your state apart from Christ, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, listen to that, were by nature, it was natural for us to be what? The children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. We had no hope. There is no one in this room, no one on this planet that has ever lived apart from God Himself entering human flesh that could remedy this need. Our rescue had to come from Jesus alone. You see, the curse of sin and all of its consequences contaminated everything and everyone making outside rescue our only hope. And if you've ever read through the book of Romans, well, actually you have. You may remember when you were studying through the book of Romans together as a church, Romans chapter 5. Why don't you even turn there? Romans 5, let's look at verse 6 through 11. And I want you to see how, how Paul portrays our need for outside rescue in verses 6 through 11, and then I'll jump down to verse 18 and 19. Hear carefully. 
Listen carefully for what Christ did. I'm not just reading passages of Scripture to fill the time. I I do not need to do that. I'm doing this because I want you to see the biblical argument here. This is huge that you understand we needed outside rescue. Starting at verse 6, Paul says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And then look at verses 18 and 19 as they summarize this thing. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Adam messed it all up. We needed somebody from the outside to take on the role of an Adam again and fix it all. We were all under the same curse. We needed somebody who was not under that curse to remedy it. And that's what Jesus did. Friends, the fact that Jesus is the Son of God is it just a theological fact. This is great news. This is great news. I know what happens. Look, it's hot in here, okay? And air conditioning blue. Let's just go ahead and acknowledge. You're tired. You've probably had a hard week. I get it. And I know that just because of the normal ebb and flow of life, just the way things get for us from time to time, there comes points and times in our life where we, even as believers, can be kind of ambivalent about gospel. There comes point in times where even though it should be good news, it's not as good as we would like it to be. I, I get that. You know, I'm a pastor, and I go through that sometimes. I, I want to acknowledge that. It happens. You may be discouraged here today. It's okay. But may I remind you that none other than God Himself has come? I mean, the all-powerful, unstoppable, all-knowing, everywhere-present God has come for us. He has entered our world. He has reversed the curse. He has blazed a trail through death into eternity for us. This is great news. Only God could do that. 1 Peter 1.18-20 says it this way, Remember that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, No matter how much money you had, you could never fix it with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb or blemish without spot. Look at verse, well, notice verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. Let that rest with you for a moment. For the sake of you who through him are believers in God. You wouldn't have even believed in God without him. Who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. And now listen to this. So that your faith and hope are in God. He did it alone. You couldn't do it. He did it. That's good news. God fixed it. And to those of you who don't believe. I know you're here. I'm glad you're here. 
But I want you to understand something today. The problems in your life, they're God-sized. You may think that the right education or the right marriage partner or the right business deal is going to fix it for you. I'm telling you, you've got bigger problems that only God himself can fix. And I have good news for you. He did. He already fixed it. There's nothing that you can do. You, you can't do it. He already did it. And all you need to do is just turn from your way of doing things and trust alone in Him. This is great news. So here's the good news, my friend. All of us here today, Jesus is the sovereign, and so far He's the divine ruler who has already conquered our greatest enemy, and He is also the servant. Insofar as He is God, He satisfied the demands of God. He is the sovereign servant as the Messiah. He is the sovereign servant as the Son of God. And we are going to see Him as the sovereign servant week after week after week as we make our way through the Gospel of Mark. And as I bring this to a close, I couldn't help, as I was preparing this, to remember an actual narrative that I came across a few years ago. Actually, a few years ago. I was 15 years old when I first heard this. Give you some background. I was singing a Bible class at my Christian school, and I wasn't even paying attention to the guy teaching. I probably should have. I was flipping through a book, and I came across an excerpt from a sermon that was preached in 1926 by a man named James Allen Francis. Don't know much about him outside of the fact that he was a Baptist minister, and how it was that these words made their way from 1926 all the way to that time in history, and I remember them even this day. It's just amazing to me. Listen to... This summary of the life of Christ and its impact. And what I want you to notice as I read this, I want you to see why it stuck out to me. The reason why this particular summary of the life of Christ stuck out to me is because all of the hopes and desires and dreams of mankind He shows fulfilled in one life. But He also adds that all the fears and frustrations and failures are remedied in this one solitary life. Let me read for you. Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. And then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never owned a home. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside of a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place he was born. And he never did one of the things that accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He, he was nailed upon a cross between two thieves. While he was dying for his executioners, were at his feet gambling for the only piece of property he had on earth. His coat. And when he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave for the pity of a friend. Over 19 long centuries have come and gone, and today, he is the centerpiece of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. And the pastor says, I am far within the mark when I say that of all the armies that have ever marched, and all the navies that were ever built, and all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned put together, have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. 
Isn't that a paradox? Such a humble, serving life would have this kind of impact that we're still talking about over 2,000 years later? That's the news. Jesus has changed the world. But I have three questions for you. First, has the news of that one solitary life powerfully affected your life? I know you know the facts. I'm just asking though, have the facts had an impact? Second, does it regularly affect your life? Not has it affected your life, but does it regularly affect your life? And then finally, I ask a question for us as a church. I'm just speaking to Faith Bible Church here for a moment. Is this gathering right here today, this morning, and this gathering in Christ's name, is it captivated by the good news concerning Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God? Maybe it's not. Maybe you want it to be. May I close with some very practical things that may help with that? If you want to make this real, if you want this good news to be good for you, you want it to have an impact on your life, not just today, but every day, let me give you a couple of action items that may be of help. For those of you who are believers here today, you're a member of Faith Bible Church, you're a regular attender here, it's a simple two-step thing for you. You need to recognize Jesus and rejoice in Jesus. If, If you feel like your passion for the gospel is languishing. I would just languishing. I would encourage you to re- recognize Jesus and rejoice in Jesus. Let me ask you a question, and then I'll explain these steps. Like, just think about this last week. To what have you attributed all the positives and negatives of your week? Everything that happened this week that was good, what was the reason behind it? Everything that happened to you this week that was bad, why did it happen? What is your default recognition when things happen in your life? What do you, where does your mind naturally go? Outside of church, now again, this is outside of this gathering, how much did you rejoice in or rely upon Jesus this week? Now, if we're, if we're honest, I don't think it's as much as we want it to be. And, and the problem, the reason why we can't rejoice in Jesus, the reason why that we don't appreciate the gospel more is because we don't recognize Jesus. We have so much information coming in from all kinds of veins that it pollutes our minds, and we're just not thinking about the things that matter most. That's why they always tell you you need to figure out the most important three things you need to do in the day and do them before 11 o'clock, or otherwise they probably won't get done. Just stuff comes in. We were just at the beach the other day, and the kids were digging out for those little, I don't know what they are, but these little like clam, colorful clam things that try to dig it down to the ground. Every time they would dig it out, stuff would fill back in. That's exactly what it's like for us. You know, we need to get out the right, the wrong stuff so we can Put in the right stuff. And so here's what I would encourage you to do. I would encourage you to pour the gospel into your life. To saturate yourself with an awareness of Christ. Because you cannot rejoice in the Christ you do not remember. And I'm not just talking about reading your Bible every day. Although that would be good. But I'm talking about taking advantage of every opportunity that you have to recognize Jesus. Whether that be downloading some sermons and putting them on your iPhone so that you can listen to them while you're driving from place to place, scheduling some meetings with other believers to talk about a Christian book, showing up to something like a small group, being there on a Wednesday night, showing up uh, to meet with other believers that maybe you've just scheduled on your own. 
reading the word, listening to an audio, but I don't, I don't, the, the avenue doesn't matter to me, but all I'm telling us is that if we just keep it as like blank space, Jesus is not going to remain the most important thing. We must pour in Jesus to the diluted water of our lives so that we can recognize Him. And only when we recognize Him, remember Him, will we be able to rejoice in Him. That's when the gospel is good news. And when you, by the way, when you fill your mind with the right impression of Christ, as we see here revealed in the gospels, that's when you can rejoice. If you pour in the wrong perception of Jesus... If, I'll just say it this way. If most of your Christian education comes from stuff that you could get at a Christian bookstore, the Trinity Broadcasting Network, or most mainstream Christian radio stations, you're probably not going to see Jesus as a Savior from sin, and you're going to be really disappointed that He's not making your life better, making you more healthy, wealthy, or wise. Not only do you need to fill up on Jesus, but you need to fill up on the right Jesus, the Jesus that's revealed in Scripture. And then for those of you who are here today, and this is not a reality for you, you're not a believer, you don't care, um, my only two action items for you, if you want to have a gospel that impacts your life in this way, is simply this. Repent. Repent of your way of doing things. Repent of your way of trying to fix the world. It's not working. Just hear me out. It's not working. It's never worked for anybody. Everyone dies. Repent of that. And rely on this Jesus. This, this Christ, this Son of God. So who's the gospel? Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we have focused on the name of your Son today. We've portrayed Him as best we can with our weak and human and feeble words. We try to portray Him as You have revealed Him in the Word. And You said that if You would be lifted up, You would draw all men to Yourself. Lord, draw all men to You today. Or I pray for these saints. Oh, that they would feast on You this week. That the Gospel would be good for them. That it would be joy-giving for them. That it would be life for them. Give them that type of hunger. Satisfy them with Your truth with the revelation of yourself this week in the word and for those who are here who are looking for other saviors they're looking for a different jesus or open their eyes we know that satan has blinded the minds of those who do not believe we pray that you would unblind them help them to see the glory of this may it not just be some type of religious philosophy to them but that they would see the veracity and the vividness of you who invaded our world and remedied our curse. I pray that if there's anyone here that does not know you, that they would repent and that they would rely exclusively upon you today. Give them the courage if they have questions to just ask someone around them for further clarification of the gospel. And I pray that we as a church, not just today, but in the weeks to come, we'll be faithful to preach this message, to proclaim this message, to tell others about this good news. You're all we have. And we rejoice in you today. In Jesus' name, amen.